This is One Bills Live, presented by Kaleida Health. Happy Friday, everybody. Happy Cinco de Mayo as well. Chris Brown in with Chris Trapasso. It's the Chris and Chris Show here on a Friday, One Bills Live, taking you up until 3 p.m. and heading you into the weekend. And I was talking to Chris earlier before we came on the air. I have officially given up on trying to celebrate Cinco de Mayo anywhere out in public because it is virtually impossible to get within a mile of a, of a Mexican restaurant without having to wait an hour and a half. And I've got to tell you, the breaking point for me was two years ago. My wife and I are like, look, sitting down at some place, like we had not gotten a reservation, like the day kind of snuck up on us. Because usually if you're going to make a reservation on Cinco de Mayo at a Mexican place, you got to do it like a week or two in advance. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And we had not done that. So I was like, well, let me, do, let me just go get takeout for us. You know, I'll be back in a half an hour. Call the order in, which, you know, the place is like, 10, 15 minutes from my house. Call the order in, figuring, all right, by the time I get there, I'll probably only have to wait 10, 15 minutes. Get there, and I stood there for an hour, and mm. the place was a zoo. <laughs> they had an open patio outside. They had music going. I mean, it was nice. You know, they, they were blowing it out, and I get why. It's like a big revenue day for the Mexican places, and I'm a Mexican food junkie, but I'm standing there for an hour, and I'm as I'm standing there, with other people like rolling their eyes for how long they're waiting, I'm like, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. I just, I don't, <laughs> I don't have the patience. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. Uh, so last year, my wife, her sister, and our best friend were at our Mexican restaurant in town, and the only seat was outside on the patio. A lot yeah. of the places they do the big bands, right, right. And we were right in front of the band, so we could, Oof. we were literally texting each other at the table because it was so loud. But usually to communicate, right. yes, to talk. <laughs> so we were like, we can't do this anymore. We're making some nachos at home tonight. You're, I mean, for as much as it's fun to get to those restaurants. Any other time of the year, today's yeah. usually not the best idea. It's tough. Um, so I did Cinco de Cuatro uh, last <laughs> night. Just made some tacos at home, and that'll have to be my fill of it, and that's the way I'm playing it. Because, I mean, look, I like to do I don't know. Maybe it's blown up more, like, in the last seven to eight years. I don't know. Like, it seems like all of a sudden it went from, like, here to here, like, way up in popularity. And I think the other thing, too, is – this is right around the time where the weather really starts to change. Yeah. And so everybody in Buffalo comes out of hibernation, and this is their first excuse to go out and really tie one on if they want or fill their bellies to the hilt with Mexican food. So I think that's part of it. Yeah. I don't know. I was going to say that. And I think it, it just kind of, like, jives together. Like, nicer weather, Mexican food, a Corona, yeah. it kind of – feels right they really align so i do think that we get a lot of the western new yorkers out of hibernation like you say so, on today don't let me discourage you like if you <laughs> want to have fun tonight go ahead but i've just had some tough experiences the last couple of years so i do either cinco de cuatro or hit my mexican places of choice a little bit uh more sporadically at different points of the year i mean i'm a mexican food junkie by trade so i'm in those places a lot i just got to abstain on this because yep. I just I can't Tomorrow. do it anymore. It's too popular. Uh, we are going to talk draft, obviously, with Chris being here, uh, as he is the CBS Sports NFL draft and player analyst. So we'll be dicing up some stuff with the Bills class, probably rifle through the division as well. When our good friend Eric Edholm comes on in the second hour of the show, he recently put a piece up on NFL.com grading each of the teams' 
in the division. Um, Chris put together a piece on CBSSports.com about grades for every player in the in the first round. Um, so we'll dice some of that up too, and, and graded every player for each team. Uh, like, what's the quality of that pick? Pick A, B, C, D, first round, second round, third round. So we'll dive into that a little bit as well. And before we do that, we just want to quickly go around the NFL. Not too much earth-shattering news because, you know, it's we're kind of getting to that slower time. Yes, we'll have OTAs coming up here, rookie minicamps. Um, but as we kind of make our way through that, signing news and things like that, people are kind of getting their rosters in order. There are still a few out there, but I guess the biggest news that came down – it came down late yesterday. Another defensive tackle signing a giant mm. contract. Dexter Lawrence for the Giants, all-pro player, four years, $90 million extension, including 60 guaranteed. That is a fat number of guaranteed money for a defensive tackle, Chris. So he's now the third highest-paid defensive tackle in the NFL, and they're going nuts in New York because – while they're ha- while the Giants fans are happy that Lawrence is locked up, they're wondering: Does this mean that there's no way they're getting a deal done for Saquon Barkley? Mm. Because they paid Daniel Jones, now they've paid Dexter Lawrence. Is there enough money left to sign Saquon Barkley to a long-term extension, or do they not even want to do that? Yeah, I think it would be smart for them not to do that. Uh, I mean, certainly Saquon Barkley was part of that surprise Giants team last year that won a playoff game. He's on the franchise tag this year. I think Joe Shane, their GM there, who obviously was here in Buffalo for many years, understands the value. And I think when you're comparing the two, even a big nose tackle like Dexter Lawrence, who proves who's proven to be a really good pass rusher, that's way more important than a running back, even a dynamic one like Saquon Barkley. The other point, though, in New York in general, what impact does this have on Quinn and Williams? Because he's right. in line for another gigantic deal as well, he's probably been more consistent and he's become that elite interior pass rusher too. And they're already throwing a lot of money around to some of their free agent signings up on the defensive line for the Jets. Carl Lawson, whose you know benefits have not really paid off yet because he was injured, he's getting a lot of money on a free agent deal. The Jets are only about 10.5 under the cap right now, so presumably they're going to have to you know finagle Rodgers' contract to create perhaps more space to get something done with Quinn and Williams. I, if it happens, I think it's either more towards, towards August mm-hmm. that they figure that out because they got to deal with Rodgers first, create more cap space, and then maybe they can talk Turkey with Quinn and Williams then. But the price is only going up for guys like that. And, I mean, if this guy gets 90, Deron Payne got 90 million. I mean, I got to believe Quinn Williams is going to look to make a little bit more than that. Yeah, probably. I think around $25 million, which seems high, again, for the defensive tackle spot, just looking at the traditional value of the position. But it is really valuable in today's NFL if you can get push uh, on the inside at, like, in the quarterback's lap. And I do think there is uh, a little bit of maybe impact on Ed Oliver, who's entering that contract year, that if he has a really big season, suddenly, even if he's not going to get that Quinnen Williams-sized deal, maybe the floor of the defensive tackle spot has significantly been elevated over the last couple of weeks with Deron Payne and Dexter Lawrence. Yeah, one thing for sure, the franchise tag value for defensive tackles is going to go up precipitously mm-hmm. for next offseason if there's any defensive tackle that a team wants to put the tag on. 
Uh, Debo Samuel isn't a big fan of the Eagles. I don't know if anybody saw this, but Debo Samuel claims, this is his opinion, he says the Eagles are the most hated in the NFL for him, 100%. Um, Obviously, he's still a little bit sore about how the NFC title game went last year when they were a mash unit. I mean, everybody was hurt. They were down to their third or fourth quarterback. Uh, His quote, we lost the NFC championship because we played with 10 people. So he clearly (laughs) believes that, you know, they are a better side than they showed in the NFC title game. And I understand why he feels that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, even Purdy gets hurt. You're down to Josh Williams at quarterback who just joined the team a month earlier. And that's the guy you got to go in to a game to decide whether you're going to the Super Bowl or not. It's just, it's sucky circumstances. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not all that different from, well, it is different, but same kind of deal. Like the Bills had to play under pretty lousy circumstances three weeks after the DeMar Hamlin situation. They got to play the Cincinnati Bengals, the same team that the event happened against just three weeks later. I mean, I I wouldn't be surprised some of those guys had post-traumatic stress disorder just seeing that team on the field again so soon after. So those aren't ideal circumstances. Niners didn't have anybody to put out on the field. Yeah, and the Bills were actually pretty banged up in that Cincinnati Bengals game, too. I think that's kind of been glossed over, not by you, but by like yeah. the more national media. No Daquan Jones being that late scratch in that game was huge. So I think that NFC title game would have been a completely different ball game, even with Brock Purdy out there, who would yeah. prove to be someone that could play well beyond his years, well beyond being the last pick in the draft. Um, he was very steady, understanding how to operate that Kyle Shanahan offense. So I don't really blame Debo Samuel for having kind of a bad taste in his mouth for a few years ago, losing that close NFC title game to the Rams, and then again having to go on the road and kind of getting blown out with a bunch of injuries along offensive side of the ball, defensive side of the ball. In the playoffs, you can't be really that banged up, especially right. if you have to go on the road. And when you think about it, their quarterback situation is still yeah, pretty up in the uh-huh, air right now. Uh-huh. Like, is Trey Lance ready to assume the role? When's Brock Purdy going to be ready and healthy? If he's going to be healthy, are we talking September, October, December? Like, And when he comes back, does he step right back in over Lance, or does Lance take over? Is Sam Darnold going to have to play for the 49ers' sake? I hope not. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it's uncanny to me how the 49ers have been able to be as successful as they've been in spite mm. of the average to below average quarterback play that they've had over the last several years. I mean, look, Garoppolo's a good quarterback, but is he a guy that's going to raise the level of the players around him and carry you to a Super Bowl? No, I don't think anybody would argue. It wasn't Garoppolo that got them to the Super Bowl back, what was it, 2018, when they lost um, back then. So... I mean, now it's, I think it's even more muddled at the quarterback position for them. Yeah, it's really a testament to Kyle Shanahan, his scheme, uh, how well they accentuate yards after the catch. They've actually drafted pretty well uh, with Debo Samuel, with George Kittle. They bring in Trent Williams. So that's a great point that this is a team that has not had that steady quarterback. And if you look at the Imagine if they did. Yeah. Imagine him as a schemer. I mean, my God. They've never really had that consistent guy that even in the Garoppolo era, he was banged up for half a season when they played the Bills in the COVID year. He wasn't on the field. Right. It was uh, Nate Sudfeld for that game. Or it was someone I don't even remember. No, it it wasn't Sudfeld. I'm going to remember it. Um, I'm totally, oh, his I'm number's totally, four. 
I'm totally blanking on it. Number? Nick Mullins. Nick Mullins. So, yeah, there's been a lot of different quarterbacks yeah. that have started, and they have been a perennial NFC contender that we don't even remember who the quarterback was right away. Testament to that situation. And don't be surprised, even if it is Sam Darnold, which I mostly agree with you, but if Kyle Shanahan can prop him up yards after the catch with Ayuk, Kittle, Debo uh, can play or at least put up better stats than what he's done in New York and Carolina. Yeah, I mean, he'll have a running game to support him. Yes, and that's sometimes true. that's half the battle. So, yeah, maybe it, maybe it works. Maybe he can make it work. But I'm not holding my breath on that. And I can't imagine what it's like to be, you know, Debo Samuel and the other receivers out there because they've had to deal with – I mean, aside from Purdy, who did very well when he came in last year – Aside from him, the consistency of play at the position has been disappointing, I think, to say the least. We mentioned rookie minicamp, and there are seven teams that opened rookie minicamp today and will continue through the weekend. The Bears, the Packers, the Colts, Chiefs, Giants, Jets, and Eagles all have their rookie minicamps this weekend. The Bills rookie minicamp, along with the rest of the league, is set for next weekend Mother's Day weekend. And I don't know if you saw this, but Colts rookie receiver Josh Downs, Chris, on day one of rookie camp, said he went out to catch balls from Anthony Richardson in the hotel parking lot the <laughs> night before. He didn't want to look bad on his first day, so he convinced the number four pick in the draft to go out in the parking lot with him and throw him some passes. <laughs> I'm, you're doing that in sneakers if you're in a parking lot. Like, you're not wearing turf shoes or cleats or anything. So, I mean, good on the kid for yeah. wanting to be as prepared as he can. But I just I kind of chuckled at that because it reminded me, remember when you were a kid and you were playing football on the street? And, you know, oh, that car is the end zone down yes. there and all of that stuff. And, you know, you're worried about taking your dad's rearview mirror off his <laughs> sedan, you know, parked in front of the house. I mean, that's what it reminded me of when I was reading about Josh Downs out in the hotel parking lot and catching think, balls from Richardson. Yeah, that's really good. I think it's, uh, too, like a young, excited rookie that just can't even wait for the rookie minicamp, which you know is is not like the most intense scrimmage or the most intense practice of the year. It's probably one of the least competitive Josh Downs and Anthony Richardson just want to get out there, and I think Josh Downs is going to catch a lot of passes from Anthony Richardson as that underneath underneath slot option for the Colts. Yeah, and I mean, I <laughs> I look at it, and I mean, it's got to be exciting for you know the Colts rookies. I mean, for all the rookies, really, because it's I mean, and probably the reason Josh Downs is out in the parking lot last night is because it's the unknown. Did like, he camp out? They've been told. <laughs> well, right, but yeah. they've been told. I'm sure they've called guys in the league that they know and say, "Hey, what should I expect for rookie minicamp?" And they get told this, and they get told that, but. And the bottom line is they really don't know what to expect. And I think the fear of the unknown was one of the things that convinced Josh Downs, let, let me just go outside in the parking lot and just catch a few pets. Whether he can't sleep, whether he's hyperventilating because he's so jacked up about it, whatever it is, it's, I mean, it's exciting, but it's also so much nervous energy because they just, it's like the first day of school. You just don't know what to expect. Yeah, and one other point, too, Anthony Richardson has an absolute cannon, so maybe he just wanted to see the miles, the velocity, the miles per hour coming at him from Anthony Richardson. Maybe not always the most accurate, but it probably will take some getting used to for the rookies and even some of the veterans there in Indianapolis. They've had some veterans that have – 
had lesser arms over the last couple of years. Anthony Richardson is, I think, right up there with Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, Justin Herbert, one of the strongest arms in the league. Yeah, the, what's going to be interesting is Downs, as you know, Chris, is not a guy with a big catch radius. Tiny. And Richardson, who has been working on his accuracy through the course of the pre-draft run-up, and even at the Combine, you can see he had improved yep. from his Florida tape. So if he keeps doing that, well, then, yeah, maybe they can kind of maximize themselves as a combination because anybody that watched Florida tape last year might say, oh, I don't know, Downs, <laughs> not a big catch radius. It's really going to have to be on the money from Richardson if those two guys are going to connect more often than not. Mm -hmm. But hopefully if Richardson, at least for the Colts' sake, is on this trajectory of better better accuracy, maybe they can maximize the value of Downs, who – by the way, was a pretty darn good value. What was he, third round? Third round, 67 overall. That's a yeah. really good value for him. So that was impressive to see the Colts scoop him up. I would argue it's probably one of the bigger value picks maybe in the entire draft. I mean, I would say, well, you tell me. So you look at the Bills draft, Torrance at 59 is that probably their – That's probably their best value pick in the class, right? Like, yeah. Probably. Of all the Bills picks, yeah, that's I, probably their best value. Yeah, pick. I think so. I mean, certainly Osiris Torrance, you could find those final mock drafts that a lot of people put out um, just across the internet that would have had Osiris Torrance to the Bills at 27. Yeah. Josh Downs was kind of sneaking into the late first round, early second. For the Colts to get him all the way into the third, early third, very good value. But yeah, I think Torrance, in terms of overall value, just how the league seemingly or how we thought the league viewed him. I don't even think the Bills were probably thinking that he would be there that late in round two. Now, there has been some mixed opinion on the Kincaid pick. Just I think not, not in terms of the player, but more in terms of where he was taken by the Bills. Um, you gave him an average grade on this pick. I've seen uh, one of your colleagues, Pete Prisco, wasn't over the moon on it either. And then I've seen other people that love the pick. Like Daniel Jeremiah was saying, yeah. oh, my God, I can't believe the 31 other teams in the league let the Bills have <laughs> yeah. this guy. So just maybe, like, lay it out why okay. you came down where you did on the Kincaid pick. So evaluating an entire draft, you obviously watch a ton of different players at the same position. Mine was more so trading up, losing that fourth-round pick when – and there weren't any tradebacks after the Bills made the selection, but in my mind when it happened, I thought – they could have traded back and gotten Michael Mayer and gotten an extra pick or traded back and picked Sam Laporta from Iowa, guys who I had graded a little bit higher because I thought over the course of their careers they were better after the catch. But I do think there was a scheme-specific and just priority uh, difference at the tight end spot for the Bills with Kincaid in that he is the best separator of the class. He, was, he didn't get to fully work out, but I think in terms of running routes, getting open – he was the best one. When it came to creating after the catch, it was really good in 2022. We didn't get to see it a lot earlier in his career at Iowa. Michael Mayer, Sam Laporta had multiple seasons bouncing off tacklers, making cuts, creating extra yardage. So I think the Bills have always placed a priority on separation in the Brandon Bean, Josh Allen, Brian Dable, and even to the Ken Dorsey era. So I think that's why they felt hey, let's go up and get this guy. And I do probably think that he was one of their last, if not their last first-round selection. So from afar, if I'm just looking at a tight end prospect, 
checking off all the boxes. I would have liked a little more yards after the catch. You have to factor in the trading up, the expense of the pick, but it's certainly not a bad selection because he's very pro-ready at his age. Yeah, so, you know, that's a guy, I, I think what threw people off, at least from the initial, like in the initial moments after the pick was made, was I think people were thinking in their head, hey, you know, the Bills could use a number two option in the passing game pecking order. And I think everybody's mind just immediately went to receiver. He's a receiver. Well, right. But I, but he's listed as a tight Mm -hmm. end. And so I think just his position listing threw people off and said, Oh, they're settling for a tight end because they couldn't get a receiver. And in my eyes, (laughs) that's not really the case at all. I think they just pivoted and took the guy who they felt was the best pass-catching tight end in the class. Yeah, we got one tweet uh, off our uh, tweet sheet today, which we will certainly get to all of your questions that were sent to the One Bills Live Twitter account. It was interesting that someone said, are there more possibilities now with Kincaid being a technically a big slot option and then having someone like Deontay Hardy, Trent Sherfield, Diggs can play in the slot, different sizes, different skill sets, quickness, and then – you know, six foot four, 240 plus pounds. I do think that has been something that's missing that Dawson Knox, mostly an inline classic tight end. He's really matured into being a pretty good blocker with Kincaid on first down. You could put him in the slot second down Deontay Hardy, who's my size that really will create a lot of personnel kind of nightmares for opposing defenses that is it a slot corner in the slot? Is it a linebacker? Is it a safety? The Bills can really mix and match. Yeah, they could go double slot. I mean, mm-hmm. Kincaid could be on one side and you have one of those other guys on the other, and yeah. then you really got to make some difficult decisions. Uh, we want to remind you that it is OBL Fan Mailbag Friday, so any question you have on the Bills, the draft, free agency, the cap, or the league at large, you can call us at 803-0550, local number to get on board, or one 888 if you're – making a call from outside the local area, and we got open lines for you. So any question you got under the sun, Chris and I will do our best to answer those. Or you can hit us up at One Bills Live on Twitter if that's an easier way for you to fire off a question, and we'll get them all answered for you uh, through the course of the show. The other thing I wanted your take on, Chris, was I know you were a big fan of the Dorian Williams Loved pick, it. but more Loved importantly, it. what has been your – review of what the bills have said about the pick because initially the night the pick was made Brandon Bean says Matt Milano's backup for right now he's going to be outside he's not going to be a part of the middle linebacker competition and then by the next night after night two of the or the end of the draft when he's doing the draft wrap-up he said well we haven't ruled it out yet so he may or may not be part of the middle linebacker competition. It's just going to depend on how quick on the uptake he is with what is a more complex system than the read and react scheme that he kind of played at Tulane. What do you make of the decision changing in terms of Dorian Williams' future and and where he might line up? Yeah, first off, I absolutely love the pick. I had a second-round grade on him. I do not think he is Terrell Bernard 2.0. I had a fifth-round grade on Terrell Bernard Dorian Williams on film, I think he plays like a middle linebacker, like your classic. He's got physical style. Very physical, takes on blocks well. I love that he was still good in coverage. He's not just a downhill Brandon Spikes type player. Being only six foot, he has 
arms that are almost long as Tremaine Edmonds, which is remarkable. He's five inches shorter, very, very long player. The changing of the comment from Brandon Bean, to me, I read that as initially the Bills were like, all right, at the very least, he's Matt Milano's backup. But watching his film, I mean, if I can come away with this take, I'm sure the Bills did as well. He's an inside linebacker. And to further that point, I think, I mean, I certainly do not know the Bills scheme as well as Brandon Bean or Sean McDermott, nowhere close. But in today's NFL, we know the Bills play nickel more than any other team, 90-plus percent of the time. There's two inside linebackers that have to do a lot of different things. And I think with Milano and Edmonds over the last five years, they've had two interchangeable players, regardless of what formation, where the tight end is, where the slot corner or the uh, slot receiver is, they could flex out and cover those players. So it's not as what it used to be where there's an inside middle linebacker that's just between the tackles, run stuffer, and your weak side guy gets to run and chase. I think you almost need two players that can almost be interchangeable like the Bills' safeties are. Um, One point from Brandon Bean, he's kind of done this media tour this week, he was on Chris Long's podcast, and he mentioned specifically kind of an evolution of the Bills' scheme that we kind of talked about before the draft, that maybe this is what they'll do if they don't pick someone like Jack Campbell, who was that bigger Tremaine Edmonds-sized linebacker. He mentioned that at times, for as good as Edmonds was in coverage over the last five years, it was almost unfair for him to face a five foot 180-pound slot receiver. Way too quick for him, even though he was long and athletic and rangy. He kind of spoke to Dorian Williams will be able to match up just because of his size and the quickness that comes with it when he's dealing with a very quick slot receiver or a smaller tight end or a running back um, that is either lined up in the slot or out of the backfield. So I think the Bills understood. We love the range of Edmonds, uh, his size in the middle of that defense, but actually we're going to just see so many more slot receivers, Mm -hmm. smaller running backs. Maybe it's actually better and it's uh, okay to have two smaller linebackers because Dorian Williams is just going to naturally match up better with those smaller, quicker receivers on the outside. That to me was the biggest testament or indicator that we might see Dorian Williams on the field earlier rather than later. Yeah. And you know, it's not like anything's a sure thing. He's going to be dropped into what is going to be a very heavy competition, you know, with Bernard Spector. I think Klein is basically veteran insurance. Mm -hmm. If all else fails, they would go with Klein. I don't see him as an active part of the competition because then you got too many cooks in the kitchen. The young guys aren't getting enough reps to prove themselves. They know what Klein can do, and I think if all else fails, he'll be the guy, and maybe even on a part-time basis with that if it comes to it. But I think the other guys are going to be the ones that are going to be rotating through and getting the reps, and hopefully they each get enough to kind of prove themselves worthy or unworthy. Um, Because you can play yourself into a job just as quickly as you can play yourself out. Um, But yeah, it's going to be interesting to see, is this a three-man race or is this a four-man race? Is it just Dotson, Bernard, and and Spectre? Or is Williams part of that mix too? It'll be a a thing to keep an eye on through OTAs and minicamp to kind of have a sense as to how deep they're going to make that competition going into training camp. 803-0550, 803-0550, the number to get on board, one 888 You got a question for us. It is OBL Friday Fan Mailbag Day. So any question you might have on the draft, the bills, the division, the league at large, the salary cap, fire them away. We're here for you. Open lines at 803-0550. Chris and I take a break here. When we come back, we'll get to your questions, whether it's on the phone lines 
or on the tweet sheet next here on One Bills Live, presented by Collider Health. It's Buffalo Bills Radio. All right, welcome back to One Bills Live. Chris Brown, Chris Trapasso with you here on a Friday. OBL Fan Friday mailbag is open, as well as a line for you at 803-0550, Any question you got on the Bills, the draft, the league, the cap, whatever it is, you let us know. We'll do our best to answer it for you. And we go to the phones. Leading us off today is Noah in New York. What do you got for us, Noah? You're on One Bills Live. Hey, guys, how are you? Thanks Good. for taking the call. Sure. Yeah, so uh, overall, like the draft, um, like what we did with what we had uh, with pick 27, I think Kincaid's going to be a stud. One position that was not addressed and that what I think is a level of concern, and I'd like to kind of get your guys' take on it, your feel on it, is the uh, position of right tackle. Um, I have not been impressed with the play of Spencer Brown. Um, I know it's a position that might require a little patience. I know he's a little young. I'm not impressed with this play. I think that's a big liability on the line. I love the guards we drafted. I love the attention being spent on the interior. I think that was a big, big uh, point he tried to make there, especially when you got a guy like Quinton Williams in the division. Um, But I'm worried about right tackle guys, and I don't think he has much competition. Um, So I'd like your guys' take on that. And um, my main worry from this not only comes from the play I see on the field, but also the comments made from Brandon Bean toward the end of the season – um, I just think there's such a disconnect between what Bean says, and I'm a, I'm a Bean guy. I'm usually behind him. Um, but, you know, I think in his press conference after the Bengals game, he discussed how he liked what he saw out of Spencer Brown, and I just think that's a big liability, and I don't think he has much competition. And I think we only have Questionberry behind him. So I think that's uh, a position we, uh, we're going to need this year um, to be strong on the line. And I'd like you guys to take, is my concern pretty valid there, or am I kind of shooting from the hip? Um, I'd like your guys' uh, feedback on that. Um, but thank you, guys, and uh, go Bills. I'm, uh, I'm still hopeful for, for the year ahead. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Noah. I appreciate the call. Good question. Yeah. Um, I think the reason, the main reason, at least in my eyes, as to why Brandon Bean is trying to be patient with Spencer Brown is for two reasons. Number one, the guy came in, in during full-blown covid really didn't have a training camp his rookie year. And then, or I'm sorry, he's the 21 class. Still COVID, though. Restrictions, not a real training camp. And for an offensive lineman to not have a real training camp, that's really costly because that's really the only time where the pads are on and you're hitting. And he didn't do that. Not to mention the fact that his FCS, his last FCS season in college football was canceled. Yeah, he didn't play. So he didn't play his last year of college – and then didn't have an NFL full-scale training camp and then had to jump in and, and play right tackle. And so I think that stunted his growth his rookie year. And then last year, right before training camp, he has the back surgery. And so he can't do anything for another training camp. So if you look at it, the guy has never really had a full-scale ramp-up to the regular season. He's just kind of been dropped in out of the sky to figure it out on the fly. So I think the deck in some ways has been stacked against him each of the last two years. Hopefully he can get through OTAs, minicamp, and come into training camp fully healthy and participating fully. I think that will do him a world of Mm. good. Second part, yes, Quessenberry's here, 
I wouldn't forget about Tommy Doyle. Guy had an ACL last year in week three, missed the rest of the season. There hasn't been anybody in this building that I've seen more through the course of the offseason than Tommy Doyle. Um, And he looks ready. So I think, I don't know what his outlook is physically, whether he's going to be a full participant at the start of training camp, knowing the injury happened in week three down in the Dolphins game when he basically played the last 10 snaps with a torn ACL because they had nobody else to put on the field. And he said, I'll finish the game. That's his stiffest competition coming into this season. How, How much of a competitor he can be is going to be predicated on his ACL timeline. But I think the guy's loaded for bear, and he does want to push Spencer Brown, who's his draft classmate. But, I mean, if you look back at his college tape in Miami of Ohio, I mean, he was a very, very good right tackle for them. I think he was like all-Mac. Yeah, he was. First team all-Mac, I want to say. So how he comes back, I think, is going to be pretty instrumental in how much Spencer Brown gets pushed. Yeah, and this is kind of – Interesting with Spencer Brown. As a draft analyst, I remember watching that previous season, like you mentioned, he didn't get his final season at Northern Iowa because of all the COVID stuff. So I think with Spencer Brown, the fact that he played as a rookie and wasn't like atrocious, he was actually ahead of schedule because six foot eight, barely over 300 pounds. He kind of looked like a tall tight end out there. And I remember writing in my scouting report, like this is a two or three year project that might pay off and he could be a pro bowl player because of the nastiness, the length, the athleticism was through the roof. He had one of the best pro day workouts we've ever, we've ever seen at the right tackle spot. When I saw him on the field in what October or November as a rookie, I was like, man, this guy's ahead of schedule. So he was ahead of schedule playing, but it hasn't been that surprising to me just because I remember watching him and watching the film that Spencer Brown hasn't been this dominant player from year one. Yeah. He was not pro-ready. And to everything that you brought up, Chris, about getting a full offseason, being healthy, being able to work out, add some more weight to his frame, being able to do that this year, I think that's what Brandon Bean is banking on, being the GM who drafted him and realizes, look, we weren't really even expecting him to be a, a high-caliber player probably until the 2023 season. And the other thing, too, is if you look at the history of some of the draft picks of the Bills over the last several years, it hasn't been year two where they take off. More often than not, it's been year three. Devin Singletary is an exception because Frank Gore got hurt and he got thrust into the lineup even more than they anticipated right from the jump. But Dawson Knox is an example of this. That guy didn't take off until year three. Um, when he really kind of hit critical mass in terms of being a playmaking option in this offense with like nine touchdowns in his third NFL season. So he's an example of that. There's another guy that I'm trying to think of, and his name is completely slipping my mind. Taron Johnson, year three, like he completely took off uh, in 2020. Obviously, everybody remembers the the 101-yard interception return against the Ravens in the playoffs, but year three – was like his takeoff year. He was promising in year one, year two, but in year three, like he was a different player. He was like a top five slot guy in year three. And I think it's because nowadays, at least since the new 2011 CBA, there's less time on the field with these coaches to practice with these players in the offseason. And half the time that they are practicing, it's not real football because there's no pads. And in a couple of the first two phases, there's no contact. So it's not football yet. And I think that's lengthened the learning curve for guys to really hit it and really understand the NFL game. And instead of that year one to year two jump, 
more often than not, especially with middle round draft choices, you're seeing them reach critical mass in year three as opposed to year two. So I think that's the hope with Spencer Brown. Yeah, that's a really good point. And how about Josh Allen and Tremaine Edmonds? I mean, they took the big year three jumps yep. early on, obviously, with Allen and Edmonds. We weren't really sure, are they the future at those two critical positions? And they certainly were. COVID, I think, certainly cannot be uh, kind of like overstated at how important yeah. of an impact that they had on a lot of these, uh, you know, 2020, 2021, even 2022 draft picks. And I think, too, this aligns with the Bills' general philosophy, and Spencer Brown certainly falls into that. You're probably not going to get year three or, or a jump until year three when you're picking these highly athletic, big, high upside type players. So I think that's been the philosophy where they're able to be a little bit patient because they've had a solid veteran core for a long time. It's not surprising that the big, you know, crazy athletes at whatever position it's been, whether it's been Edmonds or Allen or Spencer Brown or Dawson Knox, it it's not just one or two years. It's actually in that third season where we see them become, you know, legitimate stars at their respective spots. Let's go back to the phones. OBL Fan Friday mailbag is open, 803-0550. Open line for you there if you want to jump on, one 888 Let's go to Mike in Lakeview next. What do you got for us, Mike? Hey, Chris. How you doing today? Good. Hey, uh, the two questions I have is if the first one, did you hear if, they're going to have seats for everybody in the stadium or if they're going to be benches. Uh, I had was with the virtual reality to get to your seat, there's going to be like 20,000 less seats. How are they going to be able to let that go this summer with, you know, knowing who's going to be in the stadium and who's not going to be in the stadium and get left out by seniority. And then uh, the third question I had was, on defense, do you see them going to the 3-4 from the 4-3 with the addition of the piece in the middle with Puna Ford and Daquan coming back and all that? And I'll hang up and listen to you. All right, Mike. Thanks for the call. I mean, I would, I'll say this. To my knowledge, it's chairbacks throughout the stadium. There will be to – now, yeah, I know the capacity is supposed to be somewhere between – 62 and 63 or 60 and 63,000 is the range of total seats. But there are also going to be pavilion areas where people can come in and stand and congregate Mm. for the majority for the game. Like uh, I know it's commonly referred to in, in other stadiums like Dallas and others as standing room only sections, but it's more of a congregation area where they will allow people to come in and they're restricted to that area for viewing the game. Um, I mean, they can go around and walk wherever they want, but that's going to be their best vantage point to view the game. And they don't technically have a seat, but they can be in the building and obviously watch the game. And they're just, it's like hanging out at a bar, watching a game basically in some of those designated pavilion areas, um, which have full view of the field. You're out amongst the seats, but from some of the renderings you can see, they'll be in a standing area. They won't have a seat per se. So that will kind of take care of how many thousand? I don't know. And I think you're, when you're talking about 20,000, it's not a 20,000 seat difference. This stadium has been far fewer than 80,000 seats for a long time. You're thinking of the capacity crowds in the early 90s when they were breaking attendance records since they put the dugout suites in and some other luxury premium seating, the capacity is down to about just over 70,000 of the general seating seats. So it's only about a seven, 
a 7,000 to 8,000 seat difference total. And with those pavilion areas, as I mentioned, it's probably even less than that in terms of total patrons who can come in the doors. Um, the other question was, do you remember the third three, question? Four, oh, four, the three, three. Four, four, three. Puna Ford is not in Seattle because they changed to a 3-4. It's not a fit for him. Mm -mm. So him coming in the door here is because he has an opportunity to get back into a 4-3 system, which I think you would agree is a better scheme fit for him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he is someone that played that zero technique right up on the center or the one technique right outside, like the outside shoulder. But he is a up-the-field pass rusher, good um run defender from that three technique spot, kind of like I think he'll start as the backup to Ed Oliver. Sean McDermott's not going to change his scheme. I mean, he is retaking right. the reins, but he's been a 4-3 guy for a long time, and I think we have to remember Sean McDermott rotates defensive linemen more than any other coach in football. Last year, the Bills had nine defensive linemen play at least 30% of the snaps, and Daquan Jones led the team – or led the defensive front players 61% of the time. So there's not any Kyle Williams playing 95% of the snaps. He will keep those guys rotated up front, which I think is a smart or a reason why the Puna Ford signing was so smart right after the draft. Yeah, he's he's uh, got long arms because his frame is so wide. Like his arm length isn't long, but because he's so wide and broad-shouldered, he looks longer. Mm -hmm. And I think it kind of almost lured the Seahawks into a false sense of security that he would be able to two-gap and he really can't. He's small. He's small and short. And that's what made him not a fit in the Seattle scheme that they were playing. So now that he's in a 4-3 here in Buffalo, I think he'll be a much more productive player for the Bills. We have to break here, but more of your phone calls and your tweets on One Bills Live about your questions. Bills, draft, league, cap, whatever it is, we're here to answer them. We also have Eric Edholm from NFL.com coming up in hour number two. Stay tuned here on One Bills Live. All right, welcome back to One Bills Live. Chris Brown, Chris Trapasso with you on a Friday here. And OBL Fan Friday Mailbag is open. Any questions that you might have, hop on the phone lines, 803-0550. We'd be happy to answer them. Back to the phones we go into Dennis in North Carolina. What do you got for us, Dennis? Hey, uh, so first thing, uh, I think last week you were talking about uh, you, you having some robin issues at your house. And you, and That's you right. Yeah, the birds. Them. The birds. I, fi I fixed okay. it, Dennis. I, I used bird spikes. It worked. Okay, so I work for a pest control down in North, North Carolina, and we use a disc uh, that you put on, on your house. And it looked like when they look at it, they think it's like a fire and a flame, and they – Go away. Wow. All right. So so maybe you could look into that. And, okay, now to the good stuff, football <laughs> question. <laughs> okay. So, one, I'm really excited about the tight end. I called and uh, told you uh, uh, Kincaid would be great. I'm excited about him. And are, is Buffalo or Brandon Bean going to draft more uh, – or not draft, but sign more free agent, undrafted free agents that's out there. And are they going to get more money, like restructure more contracts? Because, you know, like the Puna Four signing and the other, uh, the running back signing is awesome. But we're, you know, Brandon Bean's doing a great job. I'm, I'm super excited. I can't, I can't wait to football. I'm, I'm like stoked about it. All right. And, oh yeah. Last question. Uh, 
So how can I find the mail, the fan mail bag? Uh, where can I find it? Because sometimes I, I, I try to find out where I can read what other people uh, write about and you respond to. Yeah, so we usually usually just do the answers on the air, Dennis, but all the questions that sometimes people submit on social media at the Twitter handle at OneBillsLive on Twitter. So that's where you can find that. But thanks for all the questions. We'll try to answer them here one at a time. Um, Thanks for the bird suggestion, by the way, but I got (laughs) that figured out with the bird spikes. They can't land where they were trying to nest on my patio. Um, But you want to know about free agent signings. I don't think you can ever rule that out with Brandon Bean because sometimes somebody gets cut somewhere else. It's a player maybe Brandon's had his eye on, and he finds a way to make it work and bring somebody in. Um, they are pretty tight against the cap, though, and they got to get their rookie pool signed. I was checking out our good friend Mike Giannitti on Spot Track, and he had the bills at about just under $5 million in cap space, and they still got a rookie pool yep. to sign. That's going to get gobbled up pretty fast, even though the Bills were drafting very low in most of the rounds. Um, and I know he also likes to have about a $5 million cushion in the regular season. Now, in the regular season, only the top 51 salaries count towards the cap, so that will change how much only they know with all their calculations. I'm not doing, a, I'm not doing an accounting <laughs> ledger for that. Um, but suffice it to say, they don't have a lot of money right now. I think the restructuring for the most part is done. I suppose if an unusual opportunity crops up, they may go to somebody with their hand out and say, Hey, can you help us? It's going to mean getting this guy, which would probably be like an over the top type player. If somebody became available, but beyond that, I, I don't know that any major signings coming down the pike just because they are so tight on the cap. Yeah. uh, So I think, Edge rusher, uh, if they are a little bit unsure, and it seems like Brandon Bean is actually more sure than I was expecting that Von Miller will be able to be back on the field earlier um, and not into November or you know even later, having torn that ACL. He's been talking ACL. that way. Yeah, he's I been mean, talking directly, that way. but he kind of indicates, oh, yeah, when we have Von back, and it's like, oh, really? We're going to have Von back? Okay. There are some veteran edge rushers who are still available that mm-hmm. seem pretty viable players well into their 30s. Melvin Ingram, who's been just a thorn in the Bills' side on multiple AFC yeah. teams, the, the, the Dolphins, the Steelers, the Chiefs, um, Justin Houston, Frank Clark is out there as well. The only other option that I see, and I think what you said is spot on, in terms of a restructure, I don't think that is in the cards for anyone else on the Bills' roster at this point. An extension of Daquan Jones would probably lower his 2023 cap hit. I could see that being just kind of an inconspicuous middle-of-the-summer deal. He is up there in age, but he was so good last season and so integral to the Bills' run-stopping efforts. We, again, saw you know how much of an impact he had when he was not on the field in that playoff loss to the Cincinnati Bengals. If they extended him then that would free up some more space if they're suddenly enamored with Justin Houston and he wants more money or they get news on Von Miller's time uh, line being a little bit further down the road. Yeah. Let's squeeze in Nick in Buffalo here before the break. What do you got for us, Nick? Hello? Yeah, you're on, Nick. What do you got? Oh, thank you. Listen, I'm curious about money that draft choices get. What's the amount of first round gets to the seventh round? Do you have any idea? Well, it depends where they're picked in the I round first yeah like oh you well, mean in the draft well yeah everybody's kind of slotted so like 
for example, Dalton Kincaid, who was the 25th pick, is not going to make the same kind of money as the 10th pick in the draft. Oh. So it varies pretty significantly from one, picks to, one pick to the very next. I mean, in, it's incremental, you know, if you're only two picks away from the guy in front of you. Mm-hmm. And those picks, like, here we go. Jalen Carter signed his contract. He was the 10th pick in the draft to the Eagles. It was a four-year deal worth almost $22 million. Kincaid's deal is going to be probably in the teens somewhere. It's not going to be $22 million. It might be four years and 17 and a half, you know, somewhere in there. I'm just ballparking. I haven't looked at what the salaries were of last year's class. But basically, they take last year's class, and it increases incrementally at a set percentage for everybody in round one, round two, round three, round four, round five. And it's obviously a sliding scale. The later you're drafted, the less money you're going to make. And I think the only exception in round one would be a quarterback. Like if a quarterback's taken 25th, the premium position that it is might bump his salary a little bit higher than maybe even a guy one or two spots in front of him that's a non-quarterback. That's the only kind of um, difference that you would see out there. Yeah, really quick squeezing this in on uh, spot track, Dalton Kincaid's cap hit for 2023 based on being the 25th pick, $2.4 million, so yeah. not big. Yeah, so – it slides down with each pick, and yes, there is a difference, Nick, between the first round and the seventh round. It's pretty big. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but suffice it to say that each round, the numbers go down. Uh, we have to take a break here because when we come back in hour number two, our good friend from NFL.com, Eric Edholm, is going to join us. He recently put out the grades for each of the teams in the AFC East with their respective draft class. Picks he liked for those teams, picks he didn't like. Chris and I will weigh in with our opinions as well next here on One Bills Live. Live, presented by Kaleida Health. All right, happy Friday, everybody. Hour number two here on One Bills Live. Chris Brown, Chris Trapasso with you. Pleased to be joined now by NFL.com lead draft writer Eric Edholm, who recently put together draft grades for the AFC East. He's kind of doing all the divisions, quite frankly. You can find them all at uh, NFL.com. I think the AFC North just went up today, uh, if I remember right. But he's kind of making his way through the divisions here. Uh, and handing out draft grades. Eric, how you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah, I just finished my last batch. Those should be uh, going up pretty soon here. So it's, uh, as Chris knows, it's a pretty good feeling to uh, put the, <laughs> the past draft behind you. Start working on the next year's guys. Never too soon, right? Yeah, no days off for you guys, uh, for sure, with that. There's just way too many people to look at on tape. I don't know how you guys get through them all. There's only 365 days. Uh, but let's start with, with the Bills in the AFC East for obvious reasons. Uh, you gave them an overall B-plus grade. I guess my first question to you is, looking at their draft class, Eric, because I I asked Chris this same question earlier in the show. Is there a pick here that you felt the Bills got their best bang for the buck, so to speak? Mm. 
Yeah, good question. I'd probably go down to their second round choice, Osiris Torrance, who I think, you know, at least will be in the mix to possibly start at at right guard. And, you know, I mean, considering there was a time when a lot of us looked at the first round talents and thought there aren't a lot of them. And so you're going to end up putting second round talents at the end of round one in your mock drafts and things like that. And I think I had a couple with Osiris Torrance, you know, on the back end, maybe even to the bills for that matter. So you know, I figured he'd probably go somewhere between 25 and 45 for them to get him, uh, you know, in the latter 50s there at a, a need of position. I know it probably goes a little bit against what they typically do with offensive linemen, but that to me says they probably had a really big grade on him and felt like, you know, this is a player who could step right in for him. And you know, I loved him at the Senior Bowl practices and, and he played well after coming from Louisiana and, and transferring to Florida. I just, there were so few questions with him. I felt like it was it was going to be a good pick no matter who he went to. But at that landing spot, I really liked it. All right, moving to the next pick, Dorian Williams, the linebacker from Tulane. He's been a lightning rod in Western New York. From some comments that Brandon Bean, the GM, said right after the draft, he's similarly sized to Terrell Bernard, the third-round pick last year that didn't see the field very yeah. much. Without me telling you what I think about him, I want to hear your honest opinion, how you evaluated him. Did you think it was too early, too late? Do you think he can play – and start and not be a liability, be a good player in his first season. Yeah, I mean, I I understand that he could be maybe a polarizing player in some respects, but athletically speaking, you really don't have any questions. I know the frame is a little bit on the smaller size, you know, what, 6'1", about 230 pounds, but really long wingspan that I think will help him kind of disengage from blocks. And obviously you saw the testing numbers, I think pretty darn good across the board. Maybe the jumps could have been a little bit bigger, but you know, if you run sub four or five as, as a linebacker, that to me kind of fits the the modern, you know, uh, typecast for that position. So, you know, it, it's going to be fascinating to see what they do uh, to, to replace Edmonds and, and, you know, figure out how they're going to deploy their linebackers and whether Bernard has an edge having a year's worth of experience or whether somebody uh, like Williams can come in. But, you know, I, I mean, that, that cotton bowl win I thought was, was a big game for him. Um, you know, I, I felt like he showed a little bit more in coverage. He's obviously got the ability to get into the backfield and knife in there and make some plays as well, track down guys from behind. So I, I just feel like that plus some solid character grades and a really good special teams background, you know, to me, it made a, a lot of sense at that position in the draft. I thought, you know, third round, fourth round was, was a, a very good place to, to grab him. So the day three picks for the Bills, Eric, it's Shorter, Broker, and Austin. Um, Shorter looks like, you know, in round five, low risk, high reward, potentially. Broker probably in the guard mix, um, even though he played some tackle two at Ole Miss, short arms. And then Austin seems to fit the prototype of what the Bills look for in a corner. Long player, taller, um, has zone experience. So maybe just rifle through the day three guys and and maybe who you like there. Yeah, I mean, I thought Justin Shorter, you know, obviously he was a highly recruited uh, player out of high school, went to Penn State, didn't, you know, get enough time there, went to Florida. Um, I, I think he always left you wanting a little bit more when you watched him. Um, and there was a need for, you know, a screaming need for Anthony Richardson to have a number one receiver last year. He was it by default. Um, but the, the, the physical tools are there, you know, in an offense like this, where there are so many mouths to feed and, you know, obviously they're, they're, they're a pass heavy team. It makes a lot of sense where he could be a, 
you know, a, a low volume, high yield kind of player. I'm not, you know, sort of like Gabe Davis in that respect. So, uh, you know, I think that that was a, a pretty smart value at that point, given with his physical traits. You know, as you mentioned, I think Broker's probably, you know, an interior guy. He has a little bit of experience at tackle. So there's at least a, a way for him to make the roster, I think, uh, coming out of training camp. Uh, you mentioned with Austin, I think the length and and the playmaking uh, DNA, if you will, is certainly something that that makes him attractive at that phase of the draft. And, you know, DBs, I mean, safety wasn't quite as deep, but certainly corner was this year. And so I thought some really interesting talents uh, both slipped down to day three at that position and also a couple undrafted guys who I thought were were certainly going to be picked. So, yeah, I think obviously if he can contribute, meaning Austin, if he can contribute on special teams, that also gives you another uh, you know, reason not to cut him or, or not try to stash him on the practice squad and leave him exposed. But yeah, I mean, again, there was, they just seemed to be pretty good purpose and, and, and value with all their picks. I thought maybe a running back and a defensive tackle could be on the menu. What do they do right after the draft? They sign a couple of veterans at those positions. So that's how, you know, your, your scouting is in sync, right? We, we didn't check off these positions. Let's, let's go get the veterans. We like at those spots. All right, let's move to the Patriots uh, because they're trying to keep pace in this suddenly really competitive AFC East. Yeah. You know, you've been doing this for a long time with the draft, Eric. You almost have to accept that the Patriots are going to do some strange things. I see that you gave them a B minus, the second best grade in the AFC East. Just a quick summary, maybe a few picks that you really liked that the Patriots made in this draft and then some of those head scratchers because it was a big class like it normally is. Yeah. But there were some that were pretty surprising. And, and it's tough with these grades. It's going to end up kind of being biased towards teams with more selections fairly yeah. or not. That's kind of the way it, it ends up being more cracks at the, uh, at the, at the plate or whatever. But Christian Gonzalez, I thought was a really good pick and smart. They trade down and get him there. Keon white, kind of a classic Patriots pick, you know, high floor, low ceiling, Marte Mapu, their third rounder looks a lot like Kyle Duggar. So we, we were on track for a pretty normal yep. draft. And then it took a little <laughs> left turn with a kicker. Uh, they traded up for a punter three, theoretically three in interior offensive linemen. Although I guess, uh, you know, they, they could try city Sal a kid from Eastern Michigan outside. And, and then it kind of swung back towards promising. Uh, I thought the, you know, Demario Douglas and Keyshawn Butte were interesting picks in round six. So you know, and I think they did get the best punter in the draft. I'm not as sure about the kicker, but um, some good value early, some head scratchers in the middle, some potential lottery tickets late. And all in all, I thought I liked it more than I didn't like it is, is the best way to say it, I guess. Yeah. Patriots have never been good about drafting receivers high, so they might as well wait later right. anyway. So if they miss again, it's not as catastrophic. Um, yeah. The the I want to jump down to the Dolphins. As we know, they, they didn't have a lot to work with after – losing a first-round pick uh, as punishment from the league, and then the other one given away uh, in the trade for Chubb to Denver. So, you know, they didn't have a lot to work with. How surprised were you that they waited until round seven to fortify their offensive line ranks for a quarterback who I think we can all safely argue might just be one concussion away for going away for a long time, if not forever? Yeah, that was a really interesting development. Obviously, you know, they they've they've put resources in there with Teron Armstead and you know they've they've used the draft to to try to help that position out as well. 
but I thought they might keep kind of carpet bombing it and, and try to get as many uh, bodies there as possible. I, I know that, you know, certainly their, their undrafted free agent class was made up of a, a, a number of uh, tackle guard, you know, I think even one center, I mean, several players of that position. So they're just doing it in a little different way, but I hear you, man. I, I, that did concern me a little bit. Um, not that Cam Smith can't help them. And especially if Xavier Howard's, you know, maybe one year from, from, from being off the roster. Um, so, you know, I can see the reason behind that pick and, you know, certainly there are other selections too. You think to yourself, okay, right. They could have used the tight end, certainly a speed back as well, but uh, that was probably the most concerning element of it. Even if I'm not a big, you have to draft this position and otherwise you're going to get a, a bad grade. I don't want to take that stance, but in extreme cases, like you said, that that's kind of the deal sometimes. One more for me on the Jets, the only other AFC team or AFC East team that we haven't talked about. Uh, yeah. I like Joe Tipman and Carter Warren kind of doing the opposite of what the page or, or of um, what the <laughs> Dolphins did to kind of fortify the offensive line in the middle of the draft, second and third round. What was your thought on Will McDonald at 15? Did you like that as just doubling down on the edge rusher spot after picking Jermaine Johnson last year? Or were you kind of like me that thought this is almost pointing to them not being happy with what they got from Jermaine Johnson and having to kind of dip into that well again at that same position? Yeah, I mean, obviously there's a world where both of them can be on the field at the same time, but it's hard not to think that a little bit. And, and of the Jets rookies, I mean, they had a brilliant class, right? Offensive and rookie uh, and defensive rookies of the year. Mm -hmm. You know, Brees Hall might have won it had he stayed healthy. So, you know, they had three instant impact guys and a few others who really contributed. Johnson would be the one who, who would rate as a little bit of a disappointment after year one. I don't think they've reached that point, but certainly – it felt to me like when Pittsburgh leapfrogged them, New England traded down three spots, they picked Broderick Jones. That certainly could have been their guy. Mm -hmm. and, you know, they obviously, as you've said, they took Warren the tackle in, in round four, but Jones felt like a player that New York had done a lot of work on and maybe thought they could still get, even if New England stayed at 14. So, you know, that didn't work out. You've got to have a plan B pass rush was something I thought they probably had to address, but I mean, I, I almost would have liked Tipman more at 15 than, than McDonald. Yeah. I just I just still have my concerns about that size of a rusher, you know, even if he does have length and great get off and all that stuff uh, and did play out of position in college, you know, kind of uh, more in the trash than you'd like to see for a guy with his speed. But even still, I, I, I did feel like it was a reach and did feel like even in this draft class where you, you may not be able to get to, to 15 or 16 first rounders, uh, that one was a little bit of a stretch for me, but they probably couldn't swing a trade and just said, all right, we like this guy. Why aren't we taking him here? So, yeah. you know, to each their own. I mean, but that's just how I felt. Yeah. Little, it, it, it's, it smelled a little bit like a panic button push kind of thing. Like, Oh my gosh, Steelers are going up. Oh my gosh. They took our guy. Oh my gosh. Who do right. we pick? Like it was, that's what it felt like. That. Yeah. Um, yep. Round five, they get a Banacanda, the running back from Pitt. He's good. Who, if you watch his tape, you love him. He's put together. Um, you know, I mean, he's not super tall. He's, you know, he's compact, strong, muscular frame, had some fumble issues here and there at times. Doesn't I, I for a guy that's got the frame that he has, Eric, I was surprised that he went down on first contact as much as he did at times. Um, it surprised me a little. I understand he's probably, you know, insurance 
in case Brees Hall's not ready right at the start of the season, but like, give me kind of a thumbnail sketch on him. I, I don't mind where they took him, but he's, he's not a perfect prospect by any means. Right. I think I agree with you completely on that one. I mean, I, I really like this. It's hard not to like a tape of a guy who could rip off long runs and, and run with some spirit like he does. And, you know, I think they're in a situation where they've spent some pretty good draft capital now at running back with, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Carter and Hall were both second rounders. So, you know, and there's questions with both. I mean, Hall's coming off the ACL. Carter seemed to take a little bit of a step backward last year. Some of it was role. Some of it was, you know, just maybe scheme a little bit, but, uh, or just usage, I guess, how they employed him. But, but yeah, I think they've, they needed a little insurance there and it's nice to be able to get that kind of talent in round five, but you're right. I mean, for, for a guy who, uh, you know, seemed to see holes open before they, they did, they did, you know, to to find creases and, and run through them and make some big plays you'd like to see somewhat a little better contact balance like that, but I still was a fan. I thought he was, he's a good complimentary back and, and might end up, you know, contributing early if, if Hall's still kind of recovering or they don't think he can, can, you know, handle the workload. I just can't wait to see how the schedule lines up because we have a couple of rookies like that in, around the league who are, you know, maybe not first or second round draft picks who may end up having to play because of suspensions or injuries or other factors. And, you know, he might be on that short list. All right, last one for me, Eric. Uh, I know you're a Chicago guy, so I got to ask. Are you – Yeah. Were you fine with them passing on Jalen Carter and picking Darnell Wright in the first round? Yeah, Wright wasn't my favorite offensive lineman in this class, but I also agreed with the assessment that at his best, he looks like he could be the best out of this group. Okay. You know, I mean, there were some games that really stood out, others not so much, and you wonder – you know, does he need to to be pushed a little bit? Is he is he always maximizing his talent? I would argue no, but I could see it. I got it. And I think, you know, you heard Pete Carroll the other day, and the Seahawks were a big Jalen Carter team. Everybody thought five was where it started. You know, 10 was where it ended with the Eagles. That was kind of the range for him. And you heard Carroll kind of say, we were comfortable with, with who he was meaning they did the evaluation on Jalen Carter. And as I, how I read it was maybe didn't feel entirely comfortable. We haven't heard as much from the bears about that pick. I don't think maybe they did. I didn't see it. Um, But I imagine there were a few teams that, that felt that way to me, Philly is perfectly built for, for Jalen Carter. If you miss on him, it's not a big deal, but yeah, well that, that, that decision will be uh, viewed for a long time in, uh, in hindsight. The, the last guy I wanted to ask you about, Eric, was Devon A-Chain, obviously one yeah. of the fastest running backs in the entire class, but only 5'8 and 188, uh, and he enters a crowded backfield in Miami. I know that McDaniel's not shy about cycling guys through, but is this guy a return man as a rookie and then gets little bits and pieces of action here and there, or does McDaniel maybe split him out and get him in space? Like, is he just kind of like a, a a new toy and that'll be used here and there? I, I could see that the toy usage at first, I think they definitely want to get that speed on the field. I mean, you have Raheem Moster, who's, you know, been a, a good warrior for the Shanahan system, whether it's San Francisco or here or in Miami, I should say Jeff Wilson, same thing, right? Two guys who know the, uh, know the drill, know the expectations, understand they're going to be in a timeshare uh, in that position. Um, and here comes a chain, the, you know, arguably the fastest guy in college football last year, at least play speed. And, you know, it's hard not to get excited about that big playability. 
they have had some issues at that at that backfield and you know, they had four guys and it wasn't ever clear maybe sometimes who the number one truly was or what they felt about some of the reserves I think they're going to work out a nice rotation. They did it in San Francisco where they had three guys when they were healthy, all working together. Uh, and I think a chain is going to have, you know, I mean, look, he, if you watch the LSU game, he it was a possessed guy running inside too, not just these outside pitches and, you know, schemed up touches and whatnot. I mean, is he going to do it in the NFL that much? Probably not, but you know, draws, screens, you know, outside zone, certainly all that stuff has to be in play with him. And yeah, maybe eight to 12 touches a game. He could give you, you know, some, some firepower. Eric, thanks very much for uh, taking the time here on a Friday. We appreciate it. Enjoy your Cinco de Mayo and uh, we'll catch up with you down the line. Thanks, Eric. All right, boys. Have a great weekend. See ya. That's Eric at home from NFL.com. Their senior draft analyst putting together the uh, division by division grades and just, so you know how it all shook out. The Bills with a B-plus from Eric, highest grade in the division, followed by Patriots B-minus, C-plus for the Jets, and a C-minus for Miami. I mean, look, A-chain makes a fast team faster. Mm-hmm. So I, I understand it. I just – I'm thinking come hell or high water, I'm getting an offensive tackle for my quarterback who is – maybe one cushion concussion away from his career ending. Did you see the press conference when Tua admitted he contemplated retirement last year? Uh, well, yeah, but I mean, even this off season, he talked mm-hmm. to his family again, like, eh, should I hang it up? Should I not? After, you know, th- two, co- three d- concussions, as far as bills fans are concerned, I know the dolphins only documented two. Uh, the there week three. three thing was number three <laughs> for me, as far as I'm concerned. And I'm not even a doctor, but they go – I understand the corner pick. Cam Smith, totally fine with it. I actually like him a lot Me as a too. player. Xavier Howard fought through a groin injury for more than half the season. He's kind of getting long in the tooth. You know, Byron Jones is out the door or whatever. He's never going to play. I mean, I, I don't know. And then the guys that they've drafted in recent years, Cater who great undrafted prospect playing nickel for them last year. But Nick Needham isn't anything to write home about. He's kind of like a reserve guy. And for my money, Noah Igbenogane was a miss in round one a few years ago. (laughs) So Cam Smith in round two, I mean, you could do a lot worse than him. I thought he was a good, I thought he was a good prospect. I think he will help them there. And I mean, he's got a good shot to be their third outside guy. Like somebody gets hurt on the outside. He's the first guy off the bench, but a chain puzzled me a little bit. It seemed like a luxury pick. Yeah, it was. And, and I liked all those three picks before the offensive lineman, Elijah Higgins, the tight end, wide receiver convert. He's big. He's good after the catch. It's interesting, and it ties back to our conversation at the you know outside of the show about the 49ers. If there was one thing that has held the 49ers back, it has been the health of their quarterbacks. And Jimmy Garoppolo and Tua, I think you would put them in a similar category in terms of mobility and size and inability to avoid hits inside the pocket or just outside the pocket. It That's felt- why they both get hurt. Exactly. And it felt like to me that Mike McDaniel having experience at firsthand in San Francisco, he should know better than almost anyone. Learn your lesson, right? Learn your lesson and say, look, we have the talent at receiver and tight end and we can throw any running back in the backfield and they're going to produce in this zone blocking scheme. But if our quarterback goes down, it ultimately sunk the Dolphins season last year. I like the picks, but why I kind of gave them a lower grade was because of what you just pointed at and what Eric talked about. They should have addressed offensive line earlier than they did. The seventh rounder, Ryan Hayes, is not someone that's going to play right away. He's a developmental guy. 
just it shows that it's not always just about picking the players. You have to prioritize need positions and the valuable positions. An offensive line makes the running backs go, and they ultimately picked a running back ahead of the offensive lineman. Yeah, and, I mean, Tua was the highest-rated passer in the league when he was healthy, mm-hmm. and the Dolphins' point-scoring potential went down precipitously when he was out of the lineup. They averaged just over 24 points per game with Tua in the lineup. They averaged 16 with him out of the lineup. That's an eight-point swing. Huge. And that's the difference between winning and losing football games in this league where over three-quarters of the games are decided by seven points or less. (laughs) I mean, that's a huge swing. Yeah, it is. And so you got to do everything in your power to keep him on the field. And a five-foot-eight, 188-pound back whose speed is his biggest calling card is not going to be in there on third down to pick up a blitz. No, he's going to get run over. Guy's going to get steamrolled. So... That's why the pick was so puzzling to me. I get the playmaking ability. And sure, if he's their full-time return man on punts and kicks, okay, they're getting value out of him there. But is he touching the ball more than five times a game on offense with Mostert and Jeff Wilson there? I don't know if he is. What's concerning to me, too, about the Dolphins is Teron Armstead, who they traded for, left tackle from the Saints. Very playing on one leg last year. I was going to say, he's an elite tackle. He almost didn't play in the playoff game against Buffalo because he was so injured. And 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 Austin Jackson's a bust. So those are their two starting offensive linemen. They don't have a projecty type that feels like, hey, by year two or year three, he can be an all-pro or a Pro Bowl-type player to then just ignore, essentially ignore offensive line in the entire draft, not pick one until round seven, I think was almost kind of a negligent way to attack the draft. And when you already have Tyreek Hill and you have Raheem Mostert and Jeff Wilson and Jalen Waddell, you have enough speed. You proved, like you just mentioned, 27 points a game or uh, 24 points a game, being in that range is enough to win a lot of football games. It was the classic example of a team just not ideal. IDing the right positional value in the draft. Yeah, it just it really puzzled me because I'm weird. like, two is your ticket to winning football games because if you can keep him upright, he is the catalyst of the offense. You you got. But if he gets another concussion, it's gonna be his third concussion in less than a calendar year if it happens before you know weeks five, and that's not good because they get successively worse if they're in close proximity and the the effects are longer lasting. And as I said, the guy talked last – said this offseason, I sat down with my family and we talked and contemplated retirement. He knows the damage that's been done to his brain already. He gets another one early in this season. He may not play the rest of this year and or ever again. Avoiding offensive line in the draft until round seven – if next year Tua gets hurt, there will be a built-in excuse from Mike McDaniel for their GM, Chris Greer. Oh, hey, you're leading the NFL in passer rating. Quarterback got hurt again. Nothing you can do. But in reality, it's no. You could have picked an offensive lineman. You could have signed one in free agency, not trot out you know, into his 30s, Teron Armstead, who's had injury problems, and Austin Jackson, a former first-round pick that has been a pretty big bust and not a good pass protector, a liability in that regard. So that's where – Injuries aren't always just, hey, you know, a built-in excuse. If you're not addressing those need positions, then it ultimately falls on you if one of those players does get hurt that you've seen get hurt in the past. Yeah, I mean, even their guard, Liam Eikenberg, was battling injuries all last year, too. That guy has a tough time staying healthy. I mean, I know he was a second-round pick. He's got some talent. But that guy can't stay on the field either. And their backups behind their starters, well, it's – it's the case for a lot of teams yeah. around the league because there just aren't enough linemen to go around, quality linemen anyway. 
But that's another guy with a problem. So now you got your left tackle and your left guard who can't stay healthy, mostly Armstead because he's old, Eichenberg because he's got a history of injuries, and that just compromises the whole lot also. So no guards, no centers, and no tackle until round seven. It baffled me. It baffled me. Uh, we got to take a break here. When we get back, more of your questions from the OBL Friday fan mailbag on the tweet sheet. But if you have a question in mind, you want to hop on the phone lines, there's an open line for you at 803-0550, 1-888-550-2550, the number to get on board. Chris and Chris back in a second here on One Bills Live, presented by Collada Health. It's Buffalo Bills Radio. Back here on One Bills Live, Chris Brown, Chris Trapasso with you on a Friday. OBL fan mailbag is open, and we're going to dive into that now. Uh, First question on the board comes from Bill, who says, looks like Brandon Bean is back in complete control. Do you think the loss of Joe Shane was bigger than all of us realized, like losing Brian Dable on offense? Was the adjustment just more under the radar? Thanks, and have a great day. I'm not sure what you're getting at, Bill, with respect to – Bean being back in control, Uh, (laughs) I don't think he ever lost control. He's the GM. Uh, I think he valued Joe Shane's opinion. Otherwise, he wouldn't have hired him as an assistant GM in the first place. I think he thinks a lot of him as a scout um, and a personnel man. You know, and Joe's moved on because the success he had here with Brandon Bean led to the opportunity that he got with the Giants. But I, I don't think... You put the you credit the draft class success to Joe Shane. You credit it to Brandon Bean. Um, so I'm not 100 percent sure what you're getting at there. Um, losing Brian Dable on offense was the adjustment just more under the radar. I mean, the offense was every bit as successful production-wise uh, under Ken Dorsey last season, and I would expect Dorsey to be an even better play caller this year. So. I don't know. I'm not really sure where Bill's coming from. There. Yeah, and for the Bills to lose assistant GMs in back-to-back years, Dan Morgan uh, and, yeah. and then Joe Shane, it's not like the Bills have dropped off and become like a wild-card contender, barely winning you know, half of their games. They've maintained that elite-level status in the AFC uh, conference, like having lost those two key pieces. Mm-hmm. They still have – you know, Malik Boyd and Terrence Gray. Uh, Brian Gain. Brian Gain, who was a GM for a season in Houston. And an so, assistant GM in his past as well. Yeah, so they still have a lot of the – Lake Dawson. Higher level, yes, higher level executives, guys that are very well-versed in personnel on the draft side and on the veteran side that they've been able to withstand losing some of those key guys and, again, been a double-digit uh, you know, regular season win team throughout. From one bill to another – uh, this Bill, Bill T, says, Bills open at home or on the road? Is it a Sunday afternoon game or a prime time? Now, I've already stated what I think is a tailor-made week one game that the NFL will have. I do think the Bills will be in prime time in week one. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you think of this, Chris. Okay, let's hear it. Bills at Jets Sunday night. Ooh, week could, one. Yeah, I could see that because of the Aaron Rodgers. Yep. Um, in terms of home or away, they've been – at home two of the last three years, obviously on the road last year. It's hard to really pinpoint what that would be. Yeah. That does kind of feel like a Sunday night Chris Collinsworth type game. Yeah, I, I just – division games are usually jammed at the front and back of the schedules yep. anyway. This is a layup for the league to just get kick the Aaron Rodgers, you know, uh, circus off with a bang. Um, MetLife Stadium will be, will be in a froth and – 
you know, Jets fans might be among the most annoying this offseason since this trade has happened because <laughs> they're ready to crown themselves uh, division champs. Uh, I even see some writers out there out of New York saying the Bills aren't even going to make the playoffs. Keep it coming. That's all I got to say. Keep all of that coming. I love all of it. You want the hype? You can have it. Take it all. Because I love the Bills laying in the weeds here. And love it. What's so interesting about that idea about Aaron Rodgers week one, to not have like a layup game where they should be favored to win, to have a big AFC East game against the team that has won the AFC East last three years, it is such a wide range of outcomes where if the Jets win that game, then there will be like the oh, New then York get Daily pumped News. Up even more. They'll get pumped up even more. The New York Daily News will have some crazy cover on the back pages. But if they lose, then you could start to see the media circus to say, hey, look, like Aaron Rodgers will probably win some games here. But if he can't even beat the Bills in week one, like what were the Jets doing? So yeah. That media is so kind of fickle on either side. To give the Jets a huge test out of the gate, which certainly would be facing the Bills, I really like that idea. Yeah, I mean, the air of curiosity for Rodgers with the Jets will be at its peak yes. heading into week one. So why not feast on that mm -hmm. you know, with your television partners and put them in prime time? I think it's a Sunday night or a Monday night road game. I, think, I still think the kickoff game is going to be Chiefs-Eagles because they do play each other. It's a Super Bowl rematch. It's in Kansas City. It's a no-brainer. You, you can recognize the champs all over again, you know, on the kickoff game. That makes a lot of sense to me. I don't know if it's a lock, but it Bengals seems... Bengals, too, they could play, right? Right. I mean, Bengals, I could see, because of, like, the rivalry that's kind of right. started the trash Yeah, that's talking. fair. But I know in recent years, when they've had the chance to reboot the Super Bowl, they've, they've done, done that at okay. times. They didn't do it when Tampa won, because that was Bucks. Bucks Cowboys in Tampa. I, and Cowboys I it, are going to draw. I think it will be yeah. the Chiefs. Yeah. But yes, I think the Bengals are a candidate as well, mm -hmm. in addition to the Eagles. Uh, Andrew asks on the mailbag I love the fact that the Jets are getting all the attention this season, takes a load off the Bills. Yep, we were just talking about that. Now the Bills can go out and play their game. Question Why is Frank Clark still available on the free agent market? Should the Bills pick him up only if he's cheap enough? I think that could be part of the issue. You know, maybe Frank Clark doesn't want to go for cheap, but teams are running out of money here, too. The Bills yeah. couldn't give them a lot of money even if they wanted to. That's number one. Number two, and you can tell me what you think of this, Chris, I think there's an injury history there that's starting to become a concern now that he's on the wrong side of 30. If you remember, he missed playoff games because of a groin injury just last year, and he was not the same player. And I know that... Personnel executives do recon on this. How much does Frank Clark take care of himself? Does he do preventative maintenance? Or is he just a gifted athlete that has just taken taking care of his body for granted, and now that he's on the wrong side of 30, those injuries are cropping up all the more? Teams will try to find out how diligent is this guy about taking care of his body. Because once you're on the wrong side of 30, if you're not doing that, you're not going to be in the league very much longer. Yeah, and that's probably what the Bills are doing right now, or they probably already have done that. I'm sure they have those different type of scouting reports about the preventative measures that these or the recovery measures that a lot of these veterans are making. Uh, we are kind of at like an impasse, though, where someone like a Frank Clark or a Melvin Ingram or a Justin Houston, players who were once high-caliber guys in their primes, feel like they still deserve five, six, seven, eight million a year. In terms of contenders, the Bills aren't the only team that don't have a ton of money. Yeah. So 
there's probably not major offers on the table. Usually June, maybe close to training camp, maybe even into training camp, the realization hits for those veterans right. that, hey, I'm not going to sign for $7 million and I'll just try to win a Super Bowl. So I think if we do see anything along those lines um, with a veteran at the edge rusher spot that I mentioned earlier, it will be closer to the actual start of yeah, the season. Yeah, I mean, a lot of agents for players like that, even at this point in time, say, hey, Frank, our best bet now is to wait until some team incurs an injury yeah. at the pass rusher spot in training camp or in the preseason – and that's when we swoop in because we have a little more leverage because they have a desperate need to fill that role if, you know, God forbid somebody has a major injury in training camp for a team that's considered themselves a contender and now suddenly they need a pass rusher. Oh, here's Frank Clark. Yeah, we'll take him. Yeah. Uh, well, it's going to cost you $3.5 million. What? Uh, yeah, you want him or not? Oh, okay. You know, and then you got some leverage there because they have a need and there's not a ton of people walking around out on the street. Uh, let's go to Daniel who asks – where would be the best place to park for Micah's softball game at Salem Field? Yes, charity softball game for Micah Hyde uh, at Salem's uh, Field. And you can really just – it's like it's there's just a lot like of going parking. to a Bison's game. There's yeah, there's a, a lot of parking, of parking around right there. around there. Yeah, that's true. Um, if you're looking for a freebie, I guess you get there early and park somewhere down on Exchange Street because um, you can park on the side of the road in some places over there. But otherwise, hit one of the lots. I mean, it's – I don't think it's going to be – bustling metropolis you know on the weekend down there in early may um because festivals aren't in full swing yet mm -hmm. and all that stuff so getting a good seat or a good parking spot i should say should not be hard at all uh karch asks could reggie gilliam's role be filled by the tight ends and running backs on this year's team giving the bills more athletic options than using a fullback first of all i'm going to defend reggie gilliam here yeah man he's been uh, good he's a really good athlete Reggie Gilliam is not your mom and dad's fullback that, you know, no offense to Jamie Mueller, but they're not like Jamie Mueller anymore. Great you know what I mean? Job. Great. Name um, Reggie Gilliam is an athlete. Uh, I think he played some tight end um, in college Toledo, right? He did. Toledo. Yep. He did. Played some tight end there and was kind of an athlete for the Rockets. And so I think here he's a more athletic fullback than, I think people give him credit for. All you got to do is go back to that week two touchdown he had against the Titans. Guy had to make a guy miss on the edge by the sideline. Did got that. Hit. Yeah, got hit, kept his balance, and still got into the end zone. Yeah, I think with Gilliam, it's it's going to be like he's that one player. It kind of feels similar to me of what happened with Levi Wallace where it, it felt like the Bills were always trying to like replace him, but he just kept beating yeah. everyone else out. I think they like him too much. Just signed the extension last year. He too. just signed the extension. I think he's such a unique type that you just – kind of label him as he's kind of like tight end, H-back, fullback, can be a lead blocker, could probably take a handoff in short yardage situations, can run those routes underneath, the contact balance is there. He's someone that's so unique that I think on paper you're like, oh, a tight end could fill in his role or a running back. He's not going to be easy to beat out on this 53-man yeah. roster. Not to mention he's a force on special teams. Yeah, we got to take a break here. A couple more questions on the OBL mailbag when we come back here on One Bills Live. Stay tuned. The Bills are giving away tickets to the 105th PGA Championship at Oak Hill Country Club in Rochester. Enter today at buffalobills.com forward slash PGA for the chance to win four championship plus tickets to either May 18th and 19th or the May 20th and 21st sessions of the tournament. 
Winners will also receive a Bills golf-themed prize pack. Pretty cool deal. So get online and check it out. One last question from the mailbag comes from Bills News Consolidated. Could having too much competition at a position such as middle linebacker ever hurt the evaluation process in deciding who starts? What do you think of that, Chris? I think it could. I think early on uh, in training camp, those every single rep is going to be so valuable that early on, because it's not a super long training camp like it used to be, you don't have four preseason games anymore, you have to kind of make a quick decision. And like I want to say that that first impressions will be very key for a lot of these younger players, and there are a lot of younger um, you know, second-level defenders that are going to have to learn next to Matt Milano. The middle linebacker spot is going to have three, maybe four guys if Dorian Williams is a part of it. I think they're going to have to whittle that list down fast. Yeah. It reminds me of all the three-man quarterback competitions of all the training camps during the <laughs> drought. And you had to go from three to two pretty quickly because you go from evaluating to deciding we got to get somebody ready to play week one. And there's a cutoff there that coaches have to employ because if they don't, then whoever they ultimately decide upon is not going to have enough reps to be ready to play in the regular season when things go a little bit faster and the calls have to be made a little bit sooner. you got to get everybody lined up. you got to make a check. So this, if it starts at four, it's going to go down to three in a week, and then it may go down to two before you even get to the first preseason game because you just don't have enough time to get the guy you want in there ready to go. Yeah, that is definitely the most fun training camp and preseason battle to watch this year at St. John Fisher and then in those preseason games. Yeah, it's pretty much middle linebacker and the right guard spot are going to be the two biggest position battles for sure. Chris, thanks for your help. Have a great weekend. You guys have a great weekend too. We'll see you next week.